Thank you for listening to the podcasts of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. If you've been helped by these podcasts, we encourage you to make a generous donation to Grace Anglican. You can find out how to do so on our website at graceanglicanonline.com and simply click the Giving tab. Thank you so much for considering it. Some of you in this room have seen the play Quo Vadis, or maybe you've seen the film from the 1950s. The, Quo Vadis is Latin, and it means, where are you going? Uh, in the play, set in the late first century, the very aged Apostle Peter uh, is in Rome whenever Emperor Nero begins to savagely slaughter the early Christian community. Uh, Peter is terrified and uh, kind of relapses into his old fear, and he abandons the city because he doesn't want to die. And as he's leaving Rome, he runs into Jesus Christ, the glorified Jesus who is shining and who is still scarred, is walking toward the city of Rome. And Peter, seeing Jesus walk toward the destruction, asks him, Domine, quo vadis, or Lord, where are you going? But Jesus puts his wounded hands on Peter's shaking shoulders and says one word, excepto, excepto, or accept, accept. In other words, he's saying to Peter, I need you to accept this difficult moment. Don't bolt, don't run. You have to now accept your own diminishment. And then Peter, who has been sobered, turns around and returns to Rome and is then crucified, in fact, crucified upside down. I think accepting diminishment is an extremely difficult Christian paradox. It's just difficult to accept any kind of diminishment because if you had a doctor who was jovial with you before your appointment and then look at you very nervously and, and with lots of fidgeting after the report came back and you heard something terrible about your health, you would experience a grand diminishment that would level you. If you had a career that was life-giving and everything was going swimmingly, but all of a sudden there's been some massive turnover in management and you're not getting the same esteem from your job anymore, you're going to feel a really dreadful diminishment. Or if retirement is not working for you. By the way, a lot of people dream about retirement until they're retired. And then they realize that they don't have anything to do and they don't own a boat uh, and they always thought they would own a boat and now they're kind of recovering um, or trying to recover in, in this latest dishevelment, this diminishment, because they don't have their career as an identifying marker. Well, John the Baptist uh, faced a grand, a grand diminishment, but he faced it in a unique fashion. And I'd like to focus tonight on John chapter 3, verse 30. Really, that's all I want to talk about because the universe is contained in that verse. He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. He, 
must increase, but I must decrease. I want to talk about John the Baptist experiencing a historical diminishment as well as a personal diminishment, because both are evident in this passage. First, the historical diminishment. The context is fascinating. John's apprentices, because John the Baptist had plenty of disciples, and they existed, by the way, up until the second century in Ephesus, John's apprentices were becoming a little competitive because they were worrying that this new messianic figure on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth, had disciples, and they were baptizing too, just like John was baptizing, and his disciples were baptizing. Perhaps they're thinking, somebody is coming along and they don't have the copyright on this practice, and they are illicitly taking what we do and doing it themselves, and that's not fair. What's fascinating, though, is John was not at all worried that Jesus and Jesus' followers were, quote-unquote, stealing his thunder. He wasn't threatened at all. Marvelously, he knew that the arriving Christ Uh, was superior to himself and also represented a great turning point in all of history. John knew that he was serving God and the world up into a particular moment, and then when he was done, he was done, because history had to progress in a new direction. Uh, Jesus, by the way, agreed with John's understanding of history, and he understood John's diminishment, that is, Jesus understood John's diminishment, as a great historical shift. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 11, later in the developed story. This is from Matthew 11, where Jesus says to his followers, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we as humans divide the epochs of history in a variety of ways. Several years ago, we divided it between B.C. and A.D., right? Before Christ and Anno Domine in the year of our Lord. That's how we divided things. Then it was seen as politically incorrect, so they changed it, right, to B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era and then the Common Era. Other people break up history differently. Some would say before the Industrial Revolution and after the Industrial Revolution. Some before Snapchat, after Snapchat. But we all have sophisticated ways of chopping history in half. Jesus had his own unique way. Jesus said, it's basically John the Baptist and prior, and then the world after John the Baptist. Now, nobody in this room has ever divided history in that way, but Jesus did. John the Baptist and everything before him, and then the world post John the Baptist. And he said, in the old era, where John the Baptist was alive and ministering, in that era, in the old world, he was the greatest of men, meaning he was superior to Moses, he was superior to David and Jeremiah and everybody else. John the Baptist, of all people, was superior. But in the new age, the age of the new covenant that Jesus embodies and uh, ultimately fleshes out in his death and resurrection, in that world, the most unknown deadbeat who is a member of the new covenant is more important than John the Baptist because John the Baptist didn't live to see the instantiation of that new covenant. So for Jesus Christ and for the New Testament witness, John the Baptist, while he is a New Testament figure, is the last gasp, if you will, of the Old Testament urge, the Old Testament history. He was 
in some ways, the cumulative voice of all the prophets that went before him. Just as they warned and prophesied about a coming Redeemer, John warned and offered that coming Redeemer to the world to prepare his way. So John is a historic and representable figure. When he fades, when he diminishes, the world is about to change. The world will shift into a new era. There's a beautiful uh, triptych painting. Uh, it's known as Grunewald's Crucifixion. Some of you know it, in which Jesus is presented uh, not only with thorns wrapped around his head, but thorns sticking throughout his skin. And also, he has leprosy in the painting, kind of bearing our griefs, our burdens, as well as our diseases, a la Isaiah 53. But John the Baptist is there, uh, posthumously. Uh, John the Baptist is there clutching in one arm a big, big book. And with the other arm, he is extending himself to point to the crucified Christ. The big, big book that he's holding is the Old Testament. And his finger is pointing to Christ, signifying that everything that this book contains is now fulfilled in the God-man who gave his life for all of us. But that was John the Baptist's task, to point the way to the one who would bring the new apocal future. John's life, therefore, had one message that contained its meaning. I'm here to prepare the way, and once I've done that, I'm out. I fade. I must decrease. He must increase, because the one who is coming will provide a new genesis for the world. So it's historical diminishment. John represents an old era that is passing away. But it's also a very personal diminishment when John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Because John's diminishment, after all, wasn't just representable or existential. It was quite personal, as personal as an axe to the back of a neck. John the Baptist was about to be martyred, that is, crassly killed and beheaded for, at a birthday party for a spoiled, drunken princeling. And when you think about the loss to the world that this death uh, um, signifies, it's quite uh, significant, right? Because John had an amazing ministry, perhaps thousands of followers, probably baptized thousands. He had the power to change nations, to contradict the king, and now all of that is over. His life's work is at an end, and his life that worked is about to be at an end. And what's remarkable is John's response to this when he says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, I can decrease not with resentment, but with delight. My job's done, my life's done, and I can leave this world knowing that it's in good hands. Now, later in the gospel narratives, he has some questions about that, but ultimately at this point, that is his position. And so when John the Baptist said, he must increase, or, uh, excuse me, he must increase and I must decrease. He's showing immense humility. He is saying about himself, it's okay for me to be uncentered. I do not need a limelight. Uh, it's enough for me to be the friend of the bridegroom. Notice he says that. The, bride, the bridegroom's here. The bridegroom's here. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man, and it's great to be the best man. I don't need to be the center of the story Anyway, and I want to say that John the Baptist is evidencing here not just his own disposition, but what I would regard as an aspirational disposition for all of us. In these 
simple sentiments, he's actually offering the world a universal truth, a universal paradoxical truth that the meaning of life is to be diminished. That's very core to who you actually need to be as a person that willingly diminishes. And that's a very hard word, of course, because who wants to do that? Nevertheless, it is what Jesus Christ himself taught. Dr. Shepson and I have been talking about this uh, rather extensively today, about how the entire life of Jesus Christ was one of diminishment. He certainly taught it, right? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Talk about diminishment. Take the lowest seat at the banquet. Take up your cross and follow me. But Jesus was also good enough to practice what he preached. He accepts diminishment. Philippians 2, right? Uh, Philippians 2, if you don't know it, uh, indicates something about the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, God from God, light from light before he became flesh. Gives us a heavenly scene in which he who was in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be clutched, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant that eventually led him to the cross. Same thing happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup away from me, but not what I want, what you want. And at the cross, into your hands I commend my spirit, that is, I'm willing to lose my breath if it serves the higher cause. So Jesus gives his life away in diminishment. John says something beautiful. Jesus fulfills it to a degree that even surpasses John. But John has this beautiful line that I think ought to shape our imaginations. He must increase, but I, I'm on my way out. <laughs> I must diminish. I must decrease. So here's my closing word for us, closing thoughts. Our relationship to diminishment. What's that like? Man, is it hard for me. I'm guessing you're like me in that way. But it is one of the major themes of Advent. The world is passing away, and we are passing along with it. Flowers don't last. By the way, furnaces don't last. Fords certainly don't last. Our favorite sins and idols don't last. Our careers don't last. Our political fixations don't last. Thanks be to God. Our health won't last. Our institutions don't last. We don't last. And yet, I think there are three basic responses to this very obvious diminishment. We can deny diminishment. We can diminish with bitterness, or we can diminish with hope. We can de deny diminishment. We can seek our whole lives in some odd climb the tower of Babel move to, to constantly climb the ranks of power and recognition and titles and control, attempting endlessly to become the most, the most diligent, the most intelligent, the most hardworking, the most beautiful, a better mom and dad than our own moms and dads, seeing the self as essentially omnipotent and perhaps even invincible. That is a satanic, self-intoxicated delusion. And if you have it, you will lose the very things that you seek to clutch. They will be plucked from your hands. Remember Charlton Heston, from my cold, dead hands. They, they will be taken from your cold, dead hands. Uh, so we can deny diminishment, 
or we can diminish with bitterness. That is, we begin to realize that life is a losing game in nearly every dimension. We lose our reputation, our good name, our home, our job, a loved one, our health, our friends. And after we have had enough of those losses, what can we do? I suppose we could be like Job's wife and rage out at heaven, curse God and die, lock down our own hearts and let nobody in, love neither God nor man and think we're safe that way. Except in that calcified place, we will begin to not only hate ourselves and life and God and everyone else, uh, we will become a veritable portal of hatred and bitterness and resentment and spite and cynicism that will poison every single person around us. In other words, when we diminish with bitterness, everyone else around us gets worse. Or we could diminish with a little hope diminished with hope. I remember early on in ministry that someone came to me with guns blazing. I was in my 20s, wasn't prepared for this. I just thought everybody liked ministers. Huh, wah, wah. Um, well, they were offering me what I still regard as a rather cruel critique. That was probably 80% madness and 20% correct. And I remember griping uh, with great vigor to another minister at the time who gave me this glorious advice. I said, Ethan, People will be crazy, but you're a little crazy too. So maybe you could learn from the 20% uncrazy bit of their complaint and make a few adjustments. You could probably change a thing or two. So grounding, so recalibrating. I'm not God, I'm just a 27-year-old punk. I could probably learn a thing or two. Yes, I wish the person were nicer. What are you going to do? But take the hit. Fall on every sword you can legitimately fall upon. It's just better. And it helped me to grow in grace and love and understanding. Well, Jesus and his cousin John teach us in their example and their words to embrace diminishment. Accepting diminishment is, by the way, why we are baptized into Christ's death. It's a diminished posture. When we fast, or when we remain silent, not having to have the last word, or when we give our money away, we are embracing diminishment. When we weep, when we boast in our weaknesses, which we ought to do more of, when we confess our sins, we embrace diminishment. This is why, as Christians, we live with deprivations within a world of satiation and distraction. It is our strength. It is our strength because hidden in our diminishment is the hope of resurrection, the power of Jesus Christ to make up the difference regarding our existential death, to change the course of our personal history by offering a little resurrection power here and now as we diminish. When the ego diminishes, the risen life wells up. New energies flood the old system. It is why St. Paul writes so compellingly in his mid-40s, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's a beautiful prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous called the Serenity Prayer. Almost every AA meeting is started off with this prayer. However, nobody reads the full prayer. The full prayer is better than the abridged prayer. But because I love you all, I will now read to you the full serenity prayer. And I hope that you see the genius behind it. Here's the prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, 
enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that He will make all things right as I surrender to His will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Him forever in the next life. There is an ocean of glory in those sentiments. Friends, diminishing with hope means we are realists within a fallen domain. Not cynics, but realists. We accept this world as it is, not as we would have it be. We expect little from it because it's passing away. And we are too. But all of us, you and me, we are going to inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a kingdom that will not diminish. I'm inviting you into the mode of quo vadis, the mode of acceptance. We must decrease, and he will surely increase. Will you accept this? Free at last, Amen. they took your life.